All right. Theo Keeps Talking Podcast. My name is Theo. This is part four of my Race in America series. And today we will be talking about self-image stereotypes and xenophobia. I will be addressing the majority of this from my perspective growing up. But what I'm going to try to do is expand this as much as I can to encapsulate as many situations, as many people groups as I can possibly think of. So if you've been listening to the first few parts of the series, first and foremost, I want to say thank you. I've put a lot of work into my research and everything, and I try to remove my biases to the best of my abilities by just getting into the research, backing up my thoughts with the numbers, and if my emotions get the best of me, well, it's because a lot of people close to me have been affected by these things, and I care so much about them that I just get so invested in things changing, but also trying to fully acknowledge the gravity of the decisions that have been made in the past. I also want to issue a clarifying note. I said in one of the episodes that Black Lives Matter Plaza in D.C. was gone. That is not true. I lumped that in with a group of other cities in Oklahoma and South Carolina that had their murals and dedications removed, but the plaza in D.C. is still there, so I wanted to take full accountability for that. Getting into today's topic, we're going to begin narrowing the scope of the podcasts as far as race relations go. So far, it's been a lot of history, a lot of big picture legislative decisions, a lot of systemic events that led and fed into financial racism, legislative racism. But today, we're going to talk about racism on a social scale. Today's more personal today's more individual focused with a sprinkle of history and if I get carried away a scoop of history so to speak so I told myself I wouldn't bring it up but considering I can also overrule myself since it's my own podcast um Let's talk about one of my proudest achievements and why, essentially, I'm redoing it today. In 2018, I gave a TED Talk about my experiences growing up as a young black man in my hometown and the differences in influences, narratives, and viewpoints about who I was. At the time, I think what I said was fitting, but looking back on it, I want to enhance what I said. Because if that was the last public statement I said in my attempt to combat racial injustice on a personal and societal level, I would be disappointed. 
Now I have two more years of experience, two more years of conversations, two more years of perspective, and I also have a wider scope. My TED Talk was about myself. This time, this episode isn't for me. It's for my friends, my family, my classmates, my coworkers, and my future kids. Let's get into it. Let's talk about self-image. So I grew up in Baltimore County, Maryland, which is 64.6% white and 26.1% black. And I grew up 15 minutes away from Baltimore City, which is 62.7% black, 31.8% white, and 15 minutes away from Carroll County, Maryland, which is 91.7% white and 3.9% black. My family is Christian. I am Christian. At a young age, my parents made sure that I spoke well, read well, that I loved learning, and I still do love learning. And we were mainstays in church. That's the entire background of what you need to know. The public schools in my area were and are, without a shadow of a doubt, bad. They are not a good system of education due to consistent underfunding and mismanagement of funding by the state of Maryland and the city of Baltimore. It has been this way for forever. So my parents did not want me in the Baltimore County public school system. I have gone to private school for the entirety of my life. Those private schools have also been PWIs my entire life. A PWI stands for predominantly white institution, and those environments shaped the foundation of the conversation we will have today. My first private school was a Christian school in Baltimore County, about 10 minutes away from my house. I went from... I went to that school from kindergarten to second grade. I don't remember much personally, but my mom told me a story about how the administration viewed me. I was doing well in math, and my parents had me reading at a fifth grade level in first grade. I know that's a silly flex now that I've graduated from college with a degree in business, so it's not like I know anything, (laughs) but suffice to say, I was doing well in school. My parents asked if I could move up a grade from the second grade to the third grade. My mom says that the principal said the following. Well, we don't allow that here, so maybe he should just go slower in class. So, yeah, understandably, 
My mom was not happy. <laughs> so she immediately made the plans to transfer me to my second school. My second private school was a Christian school right on the border between Baltimore County and Carroll County. I went to this school from third to eighth grade. Right off the bat, there was a definitive difference in how my social experiences went on a day-to-day -day basis with a noticeable similarity to tie them together. All of the sports teams I were on, I was on were predominantly black. All of my church groups were predominantly black. And even though my first school was majority white, a lot of my church and sports friends went to my school, so I never really felt by myself. But enter my new school, and there were only about five to six total black students out of about 30 or so in the third grade, from what I remember. Then by fifth grade, it was 15 out of 42 students were black. I actually found that yearbook. <laughs> 15 out of 42. Only problem, no matter who I was with, in school, out of school, around that age, they all said the same thing. Theo, you talk white. No matter where I was or who I was with, playing sports, in church, in school, from both white kids, Asian kids, and black kids. So you don't feel like you fit in. Stereotypes aren't just limited to people outside of your demographic. The idea that being more distinguished in verbiage and enunciation communication belongs to a certain race is clearly false. As far as those comments went, they very much persisted until I went to college to which I just ignored many years I heard it, they all sounded the same. White kids saying, I'm blacker than you because either I didn't listen to a certain type of music or used various kinds of slang. Other black kids saying, yeah, you're white for the exact same things. Me asking myself, who looks like I could be in the dark chocolate section of a Ghirardelli store. I mean, I'm making prime Valentine's Day placement in a Walgreens. A question I took rather seriously, right? Who am I? What do I act like? Where do my skills and habits and tendencies place me? The problem wasn't just in the social aspect either. At my first school, they taught us how to completely write in cursive, LOL cursive, by first grade. But when I transferred, they were learning it for the first time in the third grade. So here's me. Don't feel like I can fit in doing the only thing I thought would make people impressed by who I am, completely deciding to show off. I would do all of the assignments in my handwriting class ahead of time, 
my teachers hated it. I remember this one time my teacher didn't believe I could write in cursive super well. So she asked me to write a full sentence on the chalkboard, which I did. And then she just told me to sit down and keep quiet. Um, No praise, no validation, nothing. The other students were, the other students' parents were mystified, apparently. My mom would help out with the class, like the whole room mom situation from time to time, like great papers, bring snacks, you know, because she's the goat. And offhand, sometimes the other kids' parents would ask, is he really that smart? Maybe he should just slow down because he's making the other kids feel bad. To which my mom would obviously take exception to those comments. She would always reinforce that I just have to keep doing my best no matter what. Don't listen to the noise. Just do your best. The moment when I thought everything would get better was when it really got worse. By the seventh grade, one of the predominantly black Christian schools in my area closed And a lot of those students came to my school and I knew them. We played football together. We played basketball together. And I thought, finally, I'm going to fit in. Nope. Each grade's section of classes were separated by reading level, like reading level, foreign language, if you took Spanish or not, and math level. The school that closed wasn't particularly excellent at academics, so a lot of the guys I knew were filtered into the other class, like the other class groups, the ones that I weren't in, and I was in my own level of classes. So there were more black students who acted more, quote-unquote, black in the stereotypical sense, so socially... I was becoming more and more of the outlier. And academically, I was practically isolated, right? And of course, the guys I've known since I was five who said that I've talked white since the day we met came to school and only further validated the other students' viewpoint of how I was different from them. One of the things that I've talked about with my friends recently is how your sphere of influence has a direct effect on what you do, who you look up to, etc. So in a majority white situation where even if the grade as a whole has more black students, since I never had any classes with them, that my interactions will be primarily different than theirs, right? Here are some of the ramifications of those interactions. When you bring up things that you like and your classmates all call them boring or they've never heard of that, when you're young, you you don't have the perspective quite yet of knowing that you like that thing because your culture is different than theirs. Me trying to fit in meant that time after time I was seeing my culture get denied by them 
and accepting that so I could fit in. And this comes in many areas. This is food, extracurricular activities, clothing, music, content creators, and TV shows. Think of it like this. Like how there are white fraternities in Greek organizations and there's black fraternities, Greek organizations, or of any demographic breakdown. There are some that are concentrated in certain race groups, right? When you think of a frat guy, an image comes to mind, usually. Pastel shorts, dad hat, white claw, right? All that. If you put a person of color in a frat that's more like that, wouldn't you think they would act more similar to that ideal than if they were in a frat of in a similar cultural or ethnicity group? The environment dictates a lot of the subconscious thinking and public activities of a person. So in turn, being in those situations throughout school, I'm actively denying building my foundation in my own cultural norms so that I could seem to fit in better with them. But here's the answer to the question that I was clawing away at for forever. It never would have mattered. I would always be viewed as different, always be viewed as an outsider. And I never got that. I always thought there was something I could do, but it was never up to me. This happens with other races all the time, all the same. Kids will tease you about anything for any reason whatsoever. Level with you more, right? I've always been above average in size, right? I know that. Some might say I'm thick. I might agree. But when it's like the mid-2000s and early 2010s, thick wasn't a thing. We all know that. It was all about being as European slender as humanly possible, right? That was the norm. So obviously... I go to a school with predominantly white American children, and even with the other black kids being more slim than not on average, you already know how I got labeled. And the crazy part about it was that it was going to be like this no matter what. My senior year of high school, I played soccer, and in the summer leading up to it, I ran Every single day. In soccer practice, we must have run at least three to four total miles during practice, each practice around five days a week, right? At least three to four. Even with that intense level of cardio, I was still the biggest person on the team. Lowest body fat percentage I could possibly be still bigger than everyone else. Not height-wise, obviously not height-wise. I am a very, 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 very average height. I'm 5'10 and 0 inches, 0 centimeters, 
zero millimeters, like literally 5'10", flat. And I was not 5'10", as a senior in high school, for sure, right? But still, lowest body fat percentage I've ever been, senior year of high school. And I had braces, so I also wasn't eating much at all. So lowest body fat percentage, maximum cardio, all that, right? And me, influenced by the fact that thick wasn't a thing yet. This was in 2014. I still thought I could be smaller. I should be smaller, right? Do I objectively, with you know hindsight, think I look good? Absolutely. I like. I absolutely do believe I looked good. But back then, when it was August 2014, I thought I still should have been smaller. All I've been doing is looking at people be smaller than me my practically my whole life. Some of these people, this is 2014, some of these people I've been going to school with since we were five years old, and now we're 16, 17, 18, right? I mean, I had abs. <laughs> I mean, that's not happening again for a very long time, if not ever, right? And I... I had abs, I was 17, and even still, that mindset eats away at you, right? I still thought I should have lost, like, should have been smaller than that. You never feel good enough. You never feel cool enough, and you carry that with you constantly. Here are a few offhand comments I remember. Of course, the watermelon jokes. Of course, the fried chicken jokes. Of course, the Kool-Aid jokes. The comments about me having big lips, all that stuff, right? Of course, all that stuff. Here's a story. Separate story, right? In 7th or 8th grade, I think it was 7th, maybe 8th, I don't know, late middle school. We went to Antietam, which is like this battleground site in Maryland, right? Some Civil War battleground something, right? And I didn't care. I didn't care at all because even then in middle school, I had the wherewithal to know that the Civil War was about the ownership of black people. So... I didn't care, but of course, any time to take a field trip is better than being in class. So, you know, why not go? So here's here's where it all goes south, right? Me and another black student, his name's Brandon. Uh, I haven't talked to him in years, but if he ever needs me, I got him because we went through this together, right? Brandon and I were walking through the museum's store, right? And he and I saw this group of like six or seven white guys at it from a different school posted up by the toy guns section. And they started laughing and pointing at us when they saw us, right? Two of them came up. They're bigger than us, so I assumed they were in high school. They came up to us. They wrapped their arms around us and said the following. You know, our ancestors used these, they motioned to the guns, 
to kill a lot of your ancestors back in the day, right? And they just walked away laughing. And we just left. You know? That was my first experience with overt racism. And in fact, it was a really good teachable moment for me. I learned that what I had been dealing with before that was a subtle version of that. The lack of belief I could succeed in school, the denial of my ability to be well-spoken and black at the same time, on that day was what I learned what microaggressions were. Let's jump forward to one of the most mind-blowing parts of my life, right? I'm in, this is high school now. I'm in my majority white high school in Howard County, Maryland, which is 50% white, 20% black, 19% Asian. But has a lot of students from the aforementioned Carroll County as well. Freddie Gray was just killed in an altercation with the police in Baltimore, in the Baltimore area. I, understanding the situation, clearly blamed the police. At that point in time, what had happened in Ferguson had already taken place. So I had run, I'd done, you know, my due diligence with that. And I was like, okay, the Baltimore police are clearly at fault here. I didn't, I wasn't where I was mentally back then as I am now. I didn't think that protesting was going to change anything, but that was, that wasn't, that wasn't because I thought protesting specifically was quote unquote wrong. Just more like I knew that the people in charge wouldn't care, right? So I was like, why are you, I was like, I sounded just like everyone else. Why are you protesting? But for me, it was more of a, I understand that these people don't care. So why are you protesting? But like I said, you've heard what I've had to say before. I have expanded how I think about it. So me, young, educated, kind of <laughs> not a high school degree yet, diploma yet, but you know what I'm saying. I know about the situation and I'm like, well, the police are at fault here. So I go to school. This is a Christian school. So we had like this kind of chapel assembly thing when all of it was popping off. Right. And my white Christian school took a stance that completely blew my mind. The I'm paraphrasing because I just went, you know, like how something just kind of jars you and you hear that ringing in your ears and you're just like, what is going on? This is basically what they said. Whoever said what they said, they hop on the mic and they say kind of like this. Guys, let's just pray for everyone involved. We we you won't be allowed to talk about this in class, but hey, let's just pray for everyone involved and you know be kind and compassionate to 
everyone around you. Let's pray. And then they prayed. I couldn't believe it. My entire life, I thought that the Christian schools I went to were about loving thy neighbor as thyself. Compassion for others. Nope. Race has a line. This brand of Christianity that the school I went to was teaching us had a line. Those two lines do not cross. And that was the first time, the first instance in which my peers, a bunch of 15, 16, 17, 18-year-olds, were more mad about the protests than they were about someone being killed. I heard victim blaming. I heard the same, well, why do they have to burn or riot or blah, 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 and it made the complete circle this year. There's no way. I It, it hit me. It hit me. There's no way that these views are entirely their own. They got it from their parents. The same parents confused about how well I would do in school when I was in elementary school. I went to school in high school with some of those people's kids, some of those parents' kids, all the way from elementary school to high school. And it hit me that if that was me, the same thing would happen. The same discussions would be had. Well, Theo must have been doing something wrong. Because to people like that, the system is never wrong. That was the beginning of the end for me. I was thinking to myself, I don't have universal support here. I felt the microaggressions my entire life. But this, this was loud. This was painful. At the same time, CNN, Fox News, NBC, my school, my social media feeds were all pushing the same narrative. People from Baltimore are dangerous. Look at the way they destroy things. Look at the what they do to their own community. They don't deserve justice if they act like this. Nationally and locally, I was now dangerous. My entire life up to that point, it was Theo. You're white. Now it's Theo. You're definitely black. People like you are dangerous. It took all of one week. Then all the pieces came together and I realized Theo 
you cannot go to school here anymore. Do not go to school with any of these people. They do not support you in the way that you need them to. I felt so much weight. So much pressure. That on my college applications, in my interviews, at networking events, from that moment to this very day, I say exactly where I'm from. Hi, my name is Theo Sutton. I'm an international business and accounting major, graduated cum laude from Drexel University. I am from Baltimore County, Maryland. I used to say Baltimore to people out of state. I used to say Baltimore. Never again. I don't like the label of threat that it gives me. Because I know people view this area like that. And because I'm black, they would associate me with all of the negative bias that they have. And I don't want that. Wrapping up self-image, I wanted to talk about the image of success. What I mean by that is seeing someone in your own neighborhood, in your life, in your school system, that looks like you, be successful. In black circles, they have this age-old question. How old were you when you had your first black teacher? Or... How many black teachers have you ever had? So, Theo, how many black teachers have you had? One. When was that? I was a freshman in college. From kindergarten all the way up to my senior year of college, I had one black teacher and that one black teacher was someone who showed me the way she was in charge of this learning community which I was a part of which is basically a business frat she provided countless opportunities for me and the others in the group I felt at home in Philadelphia When I moved there, I knew nobody else there. When I moved to Drexel, no, no one else there. The group I was a part of, that she was in charge of, changed my life. And she was in charge. I studied with other minorities. I was mentored by seniors and alumni that looked just like me. That group allowed me to be who I am right now. So, to Porsche Johnson, the only black teacher I've ever had, thank you for showing me how to be successful. You have no idea how much I needed it. 
thank you for everything. My degree, my job. I don't know where I'd be without you. Thank you. On another note, let's talk about why stereotypes are so bad. Stereotypes are the manifestation of the general idea of a people group to avoid any further interaction or learning about that people group. Demographics are diverse. Not all black people are the same. Not all white people are the same. Not all Asian people are the same. Same with Latinx people, etc. But using stereotypes means you don't have to learn more about them, which means your reality about who they are is whatever stereotype that is. This is incredibly harmful because most stereotypes are definitively racist and shut down any narrative growth about that person. Imagine how little you get to know about other races, other people groups, and religions. If all you know is, yeah, they rob people, have their pants sag, and eat fried chicken. Like, what? It's so ridiculous. Let's talk about my personal growth with stereotypes. I'm not alone here. This is not an attempt to be holier than thou. We are learning together, right? September 11th, 2001. I'm four years old and a little under an hour away from Washington, D.C. I'm getting evacuated from my school. I have no idea what's happening. The news, the country, and nearly everyone within it is now getting painted a very scary narrative. Quote, paraphrase. Muslims are terrorists. And this mindset permeates how Americans view the Middle East. How it gets covered, how the average American views people who come from the Middle East. Let's be transparent. Was I afraid of Muslim people? No. But I was afraid to travel to their countries. And that's like a very light version of that bias. Enter spring term, freshman year of college. Theo, an international business major, needs to take a language. I practically tested out of taking any easy Spanish classes. So, hey, let's try Arabic. And wow, I learned a lot. Water break, you know. But I learned a lot. Not just about the language, but about culture, about religion, about other people. Here was a takeaway that I didn't learn until I had turned 19 years old 
huge takeaway. There is a difference between Arab and Muslim. If you already knew that, then that sounds crazy that I didn't know, but I'm serious. I was never told that there was a difference. Obviously, if you had asked me if there was a Christian, if there's a difference between Christian and American or Christian and European or Catholic and American, I obviously would have said yes, right? But the Christian schools that I had gone to didn't tell me the difference. In our world history classes or our like broader view of religion classes, it was like, hey, here's week one, day one of this class. We will talk about Islam for about 20 minutes, very basically, and that's it. And then the rest of the year, we don't really come back to it, right? But ask me like six years ago, and if you asked me, Thea, what's the difference between Arab and Muslim, I wouldn't have been able to tell you. And that's where learning about other people is so valuable. Opening yourself up to other people groups is such a great learning opportunity. Here's another one. You can be American and Muslim. You can be Arab and Christian. You can be Arab and African too. I know people at Drexel who are from Morocco and Egypt, and they're African American by definition, and they're Arab too. And you can break it down by nationality. One of my closest friends is Indian by both ethnicity and nationality, but spent a majority of his upbringing in Jamaica. So if you looked at him and he told you that he's Jamaican, you would never believe him, obviously. But he and I and some friends went to Jamaica over Christmas break in 2019, and even people there didn't believe him. Even when he put on his accent and slang and everything, people there thought I was Jamaican, right? Even for myself, I identify as black American. I don't say I'm African American because I can count back four generations of family members all being born in the United States. Of course, I'm of African descent, but the relevant range of family members were all American. So I am 100% American. Let's just say this outright. We got to reduce how often the question, so where are you from, is asked. We're all big kids now. We, let's just break it out. We got big words we can use. Race. What is race? Race is physical traits and your appearance, right? You look at them. It's a cold description, usually. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, ethnicity. 
ethnicity, cultural characteristics, things you learn as a part of your natural people group. And nationality is literally a country. So for me, race, black, ethnicity, black, (laughs) nationality, American. Oh, and another fun one that I've learned. I have a good amount of friends who are Indian. And what I've learned from them, amongst many other things, is not, is that India is colossal, obviously, but it has an incredible amount of dialects, languages, people groups, skin tones, etc. But not just that, but there's a concerted amount of Indians who also identify as Asian. I personally didn't know that before college. I knew that, yes, India technically is in Asia, but all I knew about it previously, like prior to college, was that it was a subcontinent. So I figured that Indian people didn't identify as Asian since India is so big, but just like with that, there's always more to learn. Another thing about stereotypes, we have to stop treating Africa in this extreme duality. We either treat it like it's Wakanda, which isn't real, or like it's some complete wasteland. What do I mean? If you asked any average American to describe Africa, there's a good chance they'll include huts and wild animals and stuff like that, right? There's also that horrendous phrase, you have to eat your food. There's children starving in Africa. There are children starving in every major city in the United States. You don't have to say it like that. We don't have to project this overt view of struggle and poverty onto a, the continent of Africa, right? And on the other side, the Wakanda side, is Afrofuturism really cool and really nice? Yes. Did the Black Panther movie did give a large sense of pride and representation to Africans and people of African descent? Absolutely. However, there are actual major cities in countries in Africa, just like there are everywhere else. There has been a growing polarization between the two ideals, and that's not fair at all also we need to stop treating foreign continents like they have no countries i cannot tell you how many people i've heard describe africa as one homogenous place it's not a country in fact it's so big you could fit almost all the other continents into it right Like the Democratic Republic of the Congo could swallow almost a quarter of the United States. I'm I'm looking at this website 
if you laid the DRC on top of the Midwestern section of the U.S., right, just like transpose it, just copy, paste, and slap it on the U.S., right? The top right corner hits a third of the way up to North Dakota. The bottom right is at the bottom of Texas. The top left is the Idaho-Montana border. And the bottom left is hitting the left edge of Southern California. And that's just one country in Africa. To assume that it's all the same country is to deny the uniqueness of the people who live there. I have met people from all over, from Nigeria to Ghana to Egypt to Ethiopia to Zimbabwe to South Africa to Morocco. Respect where they come from. Respect their diversity as well. Someone from Boston has a different but equally strange accent as someone from Mississippi, let alone how different someone from West Africa to East Africa could be. Let's go on my Asia rant. I mentioned earlier how people of Indian descent are also Asian. So, of course, all Asians don't look the same. But there are so many people groups in Asia as well. From the Philippines to South Korea to Cambodia to Thailand to Vietnam to Japan to China and all in between. Give these places their flowers. Diversity is amazing. One thing I also want to sprinkle in there. I didn't type this down, but I just wanted to, you know, hit hit it up one time. I, I looked at a chart the like a little bit ago of what. The difference between Latino or Latinx specifically and Hispanic is, and I thought that was really interesting. So the general conclusion is a large amount of people from different countries can identify as Latinx or Hispanic, but people from Brazil technically aren't Hispanic because they're a Portuguese colonization. Just wanted to put that out there. Thought that was cool. My last rant point on stereotypes, name pronunciation. It's all about effort. You got to at least try. Maybe you can't hit the accent to give it the full razzle dazzle. But if someone's last name is just a little different, try your hardest. Like, most people have no problem pronouncing confusing European names, but apparently any other nationality is impossible. Like, for some reason, Nikolai Coster-Waldo from Game of Thrones is easy, or Timothée Chalamet is a no-brainer, but she would tell Ejiofor, Kumail Nanjiani, oh no, those are too hard. I remember, this is a side story, I remember I was at the University of Maryland's graduation ceremony in 2018 to watch one of my friends graduate, and you know how some professors struggle pronouncing names? One of the doctors had their turn to read the graduating students' names, 
and it was amazing. They pronounced literally every single name the way I imagined it should have sounded. Every nationality, every ethnicity, all that. It, for all the Chinese names with the X's and the Q's, they were pronounced the right way. And it was like pure heaven. <laughs> like, they, like they were doing so well. They were actually drawing like oohs and ahs out of the crowd. Like they were in a rap battle or something like that. Like they, they had this one, like they had the names on the screen too. And they were pronouncing them so flawlessly. I was like, oh, I was just, it just, it was so awesome right also want to give a shout out to dr madon at Drexel university he at one point in time was my professor but now he's the dean of the lebeau college of business he he never missed on a name that was one of my favorite things about him day one he was trying to make sure every single person was in class on syllabus day and he got every person's name right Never, ever got it wrong, right? And I applaud him for that. And also, he's just an overall great guy. He was I was ecstatic when I heard he was getting promoted to dean. So I just wanted to sprinkle sprinkle him in the you know this section because he does this part really, really well. I'm going to wrap this thing up talking about outright xenophobia. So I've laid the foundation of how stereotypes are harmful on an individual level. But let's talk about what happens if you let stereotypes run to their worst possible conclusions. The thing about xenophobia is that it comes as a part of a bigger whole, right? That bigger whole is nationalism. Think about it like this. If you run a country, hypothetically, let's call it Yoshi's Island, right? You're in charge of Yoshi's Island, and you are home to a whole spectrum of Yoshi, all the colors, but the original Yoshi is green, and other islands are full of red and blue and yellow and pink Yoshi, right? But you mainly have green Yoshi. If you say, as leader of your country, man, I love our Yoshi's Island. We're the best island in the world. In fact, that blue Yoshi Island over there, they make weapons, and their Yoshi eggs are full of dynamite. And that red island over there, they steal Yoshi eggs and sell them to plumbers who love real world women. We can't trust their products. We have to make everything here. Do you get what that sounds like? It is nationalism. It's the elevation of the main Yoshi Island, but the brewing of mistrust from the other Yoshi Islands. And those other islands are predominantly other Yoshi colors. So now, some of the green Yoshi who truly believe those other islands are bad will associate the badness of the island with the color of the Yoshi there. And there comes the problem. Now, in their head, blue Yoshi aren't trustworthy, 
even though Green Yoshi perform routine tax fraud and commit their own crimes, their increased nationalism is now weaponized against those other islands. It happens routinely over and over again, generations across generations. Now, if you yourself openly applied that thinking to any real world countries in the past in your mind, that's good. Or present in your mind, that's good. I'm glad Yoshi can help. (laughs) But think of it that way. Those people who truly believe that other people groups are inherently bad are dangerous. There are legitimately people out there who think that if you took a group of 100 green Yoshi, 100 blue Yoshi, 100 red Yoshi, and 100 yellow Yoshi, that certain colors are inherently more dangerous because of the color that they are. Which is patently false, but people do believe that. And it is dangerous, and it is racist. Thank you for tuning in to another episode for the Race in America series part four. I had a good time recording this. I think that I have one more, one more episode in the Race for Race in America series. And I apologize in advance. The title is going to be pretty dramatic, <laughs> but it's going to be it's not going to be false. I'm looking forward to it. Um, Thank you so much if you made it to the end. Hopefully, I'll catch you next time. Stay safe. Please be conscious of where you're going, who you're hanging out with. We still are in a panty. We're still in the pandemic right now. Wear your mask if you need to go out. But just be careful of the places you go. Hey, stay safe, and I'll catch you all next time.